seated. If you have a Bible with you today, and I, I sincerely hope that you do, please turn to the end of Esther 2. Uh, we'll begin reading in just a moment in, in chapter 2, verse 19. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, it would be helpful, I think, for you to grab one of the black ESV Bibles in the seats in front of you. Uh, and you can find Esther uh, 2 and 3, uh, beginning on page 411 in those Bibles. I think that uh, we can objectively look back and say that 2020 wasn't the best of years. It was a difficult year for many of us, and certainly some of us are hoping that that will be the year that we reference as the most difficult year of our lives, and certainly uh, maybe not on a personal level, but as a, as, a, as a people and as a world that this might be one of the more difficult years that we have faced. All this goes to show, if nothing else, how really truly lucky we are. This is certainly not, as some have called it, the worst year ever. There have been many worse years. There's probably hundreds of worse years than what we suffered in 2020. In the year 536, an Icelandic volcano erupted and it covered the earth with ash and fog for the better part of 18 months, which means direct sunlight didn't get to the earth for almost a year and a half, causing temperatures to plummet, which I know sounds ironic because it's like two degrees outside and the sun is nice and bright. Uh, but think of how bad it would be, right? So it could be worse. And uh, not only that, but because the temperatures plummeted, there was famine uh, in many places of the world, and probably because of that, helped spread the bubonic plague across the Byzantine Empire, and in the end, killing some 100 million people. That was almost half of the population of that empire. Certainly, it can be worse. But that doesn't mean, simply because it can be worse, that things aren't bad. We've had years where it seemed like nothing was going to go right. We've had days where... Even the moment that we've woken up to the moment we go to bed, it seems like one bad thing after another, after another, after another happens. Today we have before us this kind of day or week or year, however many uh, and however much time it might have taken for all of this to unfold before Mordecai, where Mordecai indeed has a series of unfortunate events happen to him. As we go from a situation which Mordecai is doing fairly well, to in a very short span of time, at the beginning of chapter 4, at the chapter, end of chapter 2, he is doing incredibly well. At the beginning of chapter 4, he is lying in the dust in the fetal position, weeping over the lot that has been given to him. How does this happen, and how are the people of God to respond to it? Let us turn to the book of Esther and find out. Now, as we go through this, we're going to be doing something a little bit unusual. Typically, I read the entirety of the passage before us uh, in one fell swoop and then refer back to it as we go through. Today, we're going to be reading it in chunks. Uh, so in the first chunk that we read this morning, we're going to be reading from verse 19 down through verse 23 at the end of chapter 2 as we talk about the height of Mordecai's success. Read with me here, beginning in verse 19. Now, when the virgins were gathered together the second time, Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate. Esther had not made known her kindred or her people, as Mordecai had commanded her, for Esther obeyed Mordecai just as when she was brought up by him. In those days, as Mordecai was sitting at the king's gate, Bigthan and Teresh, two of the king's eunuchs, who guarded the threshold, became angry and sought to lay hands on King Ahasuerus. And this came to the knowledge of Mordecai, and he told it to Queen Esther, and Queen Esther told the king in the name of Mordecai. When the affair was investigated and found to be so, 
The men were both hanged on the gallows, and it was recorded in the book of the Chronicles in the presence of the king. This is the reading of God's holy, precious, and inerrant word. First in this section, let's talk about the height of success. Mordecai is doing very, very well here. It's likely that we could hardly think that Mordecai could be doing better. Things have turned out well-ish for Esther. And I say well-ish because I, we can't say that it's turned out great for her. We can't say that it's turned out the way she might even want it to have turned out. I was thinking this past week of what I had spoken of last week, and um, I wanted to make something emphatic. I don't think that I was mistaken in what I said. I think that if I failed in some way, shape, or form in this particular area, maybe I failed in multiple other areas, but in this particular area, it was simply because I wasn't emphatic enough. I do think that there's indications in Scripture here specifically that Esther was not pure as the driven snow, and, and perhaps she was sinful in some of the things that she did. But even if that's true, uh, as I tried to highlight last week, there was probably ignorance. She was put in an incredibly difficult situation. I, I want to make it very clear that Esther was a victim in everything that happened. Esther was, and this is part and parcel of the story, powerless. Mordecai seems to be pushing her into this relationship. Certainly the laws of the land and the powers that be were pushing her into this relationship. So even if we find her sinful, we need to understand that sin is not a zero-sum game. It's not as though as soon as we lay blame on somebody, that resolves every other blame that could be laid. Simply because she might have done what was foolish or even sinful does not mean that what happened to her was good and right. Ahasuerus' sin, as he was the one in power, was so much greater than Esther's. What he did was wrong, and it was abhorrent to the Lord. And Esther, even if she was in sin, was greatly sinned upon in this manner. So, we might not want to say that Esther is doing well, but she certainly is doing as good as we could think she'd be doing. Mordecai, who is sitting at the gate, we come to a number of things in this particular text. This isn't a problem of the ESV, it's just a problem of translation, where we don't have really good ways to translate this stuff. Gate makes us think of sort of an iron gate that lets people in and takes people out, but this gate was more of a building. It was more of like a courtroom where, where the king's business was done. As a matter of fact, they have excavated this gate and found that it is actually a 13,000 square foot building where most of the king's work was done. And Mordecai was likely there, not simply because he was waiting to hear reports of Esther, but he was there because he was part and parcel of the king's business. This was uh, sort of a low-level attendant, mid-level attendant to the king. And then while he is there, he overhears this plot, this assassination attempt. They want to lay hands on him, which is no less than saying they want to kill him. He does what he ought to do. He reports it to Esther, who reports it to the king in the name of Mordecai. This does a couple of really wonderful things for Mordecai. First, it cements the importance of Esther before the king. She was already well thought of. She was already pleasing to him in a number of ways. This simply adds to it. The fact that she has a contact who turned in an assassination attempt can only make her grow in esteem in the king's eyes. But not only that, it puts Mordecai's name in front of the king. And in an honor and shame society that we have, especially here in Persia, and especially amongst the Jews, 
Mordecai could rightly expect that he should be rewarded for this with great honor from the king for doing exactly the thing that he has done. So by the time we come to the end of the second chapter, it is very unlikely that things could have been going better for Mordecai. Esther is safe and secure at the very least. She is not in any danger. She has been accepted by the king. She has favor before the king, and that favor has been cemented by having this plot being revealed to him. What's more, this plot being revealed to him has perhaps made him in line for an advancement before the king. Yet we know how the story is going to go. This is not going to turn out well for Mordecai, no matter how well it seemed like things were going now. It is appropriate then to stop and to remind ourselves of how much we ought to give thanks to God for the good things that we have. Never take it for granted that you're going to have those good things. You're never going to, you're going to have those loved ones with you forever. You're going to have the, the kind of job that you have right now forever. That, that there's no way that these things could fall and crumble away from you. There's no way that the good in your life can, can be moved away. And a lot of the reason why we don't give thanks is because we just take it for granted that those things will always be there. They're hardly gifts to us sometimes. They're just the way things are. But as Mordecai is going to learn and as we ought to already know, we ought to give God thanks for the good things that we have in our sight because, man, they can, they can be removed from us at any time. Let us then turn to 3, 1 through 6 as we continue on in this plot and talk about the honor of Haman. The honor of Haman. Chapter 3 begins this way. After these things, King Ahasuerus promoted Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadatha, and advanced him and set his throne above all the officials who were with him. And all the king's servants who were at the king's gate bowed down and paid homage to Haman, for the king had so commanded concerning him. But Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage. Then the king's servants who were at the king's gate said to Mordecai, Why do you transgress the king's command? And when they spoke to him day after day, and he would not listen to them, they told Haman in order to see whether Mordecai's words would stand, for he told them that he was a Jew. And when Haman saw that Mordecai did not bow down or pay homage to him, Haman was filled with fury. But he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone. So, as they made known to him the people of Mordecai, Haman sought to destroy all the Jews, the people of Mordecai, throughout the whole kingdom of Ahasuerus. Let's talk about the honor of Haman. First, let's realize that the chapter divisions that are here are only here for help and reference, and they are not here as authoritative guides to how to read these things. Now, I know I stopped at the end of chapter 2, and we just began reading at the beginning of chapter 3, but you ought to really ignore that chapter division. And the reason why you ought to ignore it is because when you understand that there's a chapter division there, you think we're starting something new. And so the newness of what actually comes up does not surprise you, but it ought to surprise you. When you read the end of chapter 2, and you read what Mordecai has done, the obvious expectation is that Mordecai is going to be rewarded, Mordecai is going to be promoted. And so when we read after these things, King Hahasuerus promoted, we ought to expect that the next name is Mordecai. We ought to say, hey, he's promoted Mordecai, that's great news. Instead, what we get is a promotion for somebody that we haven't even been introduced to yet. It is incredibly unexpected 
to have a name that isn't Mordecai's there, not only because we've been set up to expect Mordecai, but because we haven't even been introduced to Haman. Who is Haman? Haman, it says, is an Agagite. This Haman is sort of like the anti-Daniel or the anti-Joseph. He is, he is brought up in power, promoted for reasons that we don't know, and set as second in the kingdom. Only to the king does he have to answer. All the power of Ahasuerus is under him. Honor and homage is demanded of everyone who sees him to bow down before him. It is interesting, this is the second time in the book of Esther that the king has issued orders demanding homage and honor be paid. The first was at the end of chapter 1 where it was said that women and their, their wives should always honor their husbands. And here it is said that the court attendants and the officials ought to honor Haman. There's something about commanding honor that just seems wrong. Certainly we know that this happens. This happens all the time. It happens for us. We can stand before judges that we know are not worthy of honor, that we know are filled with sin and wickedness. And yet our custom is, especially if you are a lawyer in that courtroom, to refer to that person as your honor. This is just what we do. It's part of the civil ceremony that we have. We can have honor demanded. Oftentimes when that honor is given, it is not given because we think that person is worthy of honor, but because we think that the ones who are commanding it are worthy of honor. So you might honor the spouse of a friend because you want to honor that friend. Maybe you don't know the spouse very well. Maybe you don't even like the spouse, but you're going to treat them with respect because you really respect your friend. This is true even of marriages. God commands the wives to respect their husbands. And this is true even when, even when, the husbands, quite frankly, are not worthy of that respect. Why should you give it? Not because he is inherently worthy of the respect. You give it because God is worthy of respect. You're honoring the husband in order to honor God. You'll notice in that text in Ephesians 5, what we ought to be is men, especially husbands, who are worthy of that honor. We ought to give our lives just like Jesus Christ did. And in doing so, we would be worthy of the honor that the women are to give us. Excuse me, not women in general. The wife is to give us. It's interesting to me that when the officials come back to Mordecai, they don't say, don't you see how great Haman is? Didn't you hear of what he did for the king and what he's done for the kingdom? Why is it that you dishonor Haman by not giving him honor? Why is it that you do this to Haman? They don't care about Haman. It's not Haman that's the problem. They say, why do you transgress the king's command? And more than that, they spoke to him day after day after day about it. <coughs> Wake up. They speak to him day after day after day about it, and his, his answer is pretty consistent. It's, well, I'm, I'm a Jew. Now, that needs some explanation because, quite frankly, it's unclear what being a Jew has to do with giving somebody in a court honor. I mean, this is really just court manners. It's no different than thinking that English people ought to bow before their queen. This is not like Daniel's withholding worship from a golden statue in the form of Nebuchadnezzar. This is not the same thing. 
We have tons of examples of Jews in foreign countries doing precisely this. It doesn't seem to be linked to idolatry or anything religious in that nature. So why does he keep saying that he is a Jew? What does it mean? I think that there's probably two things that kind of merge into one. First, I think that we are right to suspect that there is a sense of the loss of honor and the gain of honor as playing here. Mordecai deserves to be honored, and he hasn't been honored. We have no reason to understand why Haman is being honored, but he is being honored. And just like the book of Esther does in other places, where it doesn't put the question of where is God on the lips of either Esther or Mordecai, but places it upon them through us so that we ask, where is God in all of this? And we think that that is exactly what Mordecai thinks as we are reading through the end of two and the beginning of three, and we wonder, why is it that Haman, the Agagite, is getting promoted and not Mordecai? I think that that is the same thought that is likely going through Mordecai's mind. But on top of that, we know one thing particularly about Haman. We know nothing else about him. We don't know why he was promoted. We know that he is great now, but we know one thing about his history, and that is that he is an Agagite. Frankly, that one word, that he is an Agagite, can sum up the entirety of the book of Esther and God's working through it, which is strange, but as we will see in the coming chapters, it is true. What this means is that he is descended from Agag. Agag was an Amalekite king, and the reason why this matters is because there was a son of Kish, a Benjaminite, who was appointed the king of Israel. In 1 Samuel 15, was told to go and destroy the Amalekites. Because in Exodus, when the people of God were weak with, and weary with travel and thirst, the Amalekites came and attacked them on the road. God delivered them, but he uttered a very, very strong decree against them. In Exodus 17, 14, God said this, Write this as a memorial in a book and recite it in the ears of Joshua that I will utterly blot out the memory of Amalek from under heaven. I will destroy them all. And the man he chose to destroy them all was Saul. Saul, now, as the people of God are settled in their land, they have a king, a mighty warrior. Saul, go, son of Kish, go, Benjaminite, go, and destroy the Amalekites. Every one of them, man, woman, child, Livestock, destroy them and make the word of God come true. Saul does this with the exception of the king, with the exception of Agag. He allows him to live in some of the best of the livestock. In an essence, what he is doing is giving the king honor, frankly. Why was the king saved and none of the other people? Kings are due honor. So, it's very likely, if Mordecai understands this, who is also a son of Kish, who is also a Benjaminite, it would be hard for him to give honor to a son of Agag, knowing that in his father's giving honor to the son of Agag, his father was dishonored, already being dishonored. How can he give honor to a son of Agag? He is a Jew, after all, a son of Kish and a Benjaminite. So he refuses Verse 4 is a little bit wordy. It's difficult to kind of parse out exactly what's going on here. I don't think that we should think that these, 
these court officials were anti-Semitic and they, they didn't really care that he was a Jew, I think that they were honestly saying, I don't know that that's a really good reason to not pay homage to him. And so when it says that they, they went to see whether Mordecai's words would stand for, he told them that he was a Jew, wasn't like, hey, this Jew is really fighting you. They, they went and they said, listen, he keeps saying that he's a Jew. Is this honestly a, a good reason? Do, do the Jews get exemption from some of the king's commands? Now, obviously, that was never going to be the case. So this, by coming to Haman, notifies Haman who he's dealing with, which is interesting because apparently not only did Haman never even notice that Mordecai didn't do this, he didn't even know who Mordecai was. Mordecai was nothing to him. Verse 6, when it says that he disdained, uh, yes, verse 6, where he says, he disdained to lay hands on Mordecai alone is a little bit wonky in the way that it's handled. It's not so much that he disdained, it was just that he was below him. I am, I am Haman, I'm second in command to the king. Why would I set my sights on a lowly mid-level assistant to put him to death? No, I can, I can do better than that. I can do better than just putting an end to Mordecai. I'll put an end to all of his people. If we assume that Mordecai knew of the history of the Amalekites and the Jews, there's no reason to assume that the son of Agag wouldn't have been under very clear, very clear historical knowledge of the exact same thing. So he sets his sight on the entire people. Now, Haman has a number of character flaws. The largest in all of this is simply the fact that he was prideful. Yes, I know he, he hated Mordecai, and yes, that's not a great thing, and yes, there was probably other ways to deal with this. But the text sets up the fact that he was prideful, that he looked down on simply taking his vengeance out on Mordecai alone. I can't, I can't tell myself, and I can't tell you enough how dangerous pride is and how sneaky it is in our lives. Pride is incredibly dangerous. Go through the biblical narrative and see how often major disasters that God uses to bring redemption to his people would have been avoided if those in question would have simply been humble. If Mordecai was simply humble enough to deal with Mordecai alone, he wouldn't have found his destruction. If Pharaoh was humble enough to let the people of God go, he wouldn't have been crushed. If the Pharisees would have been humble enough to listen to the Christ, they might have received salvation. But pride and evil always go hand in hand. Mordecai probably should have paid homage to him. Maybe he has really, really good reasons. But because he does not wish to honor Haman, and Haman shows that he is not worthy of honor, he sets out to destroy all of the Jews. Which brings us to the horror of fate. The horror of fate in verses 7 through 11, if you would read with me. In the first month, which is the month of Nisan, in the twelfth year of King Ahasuerus, they cast poor, that is, they cast lots, before Haman, day after day, and they cast it month after month till the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. Then Haman said to King Ahasuerus, 
There is a certain people scattered abroad and dispersed amongst the people in all the provinces of your kingdom. Their laws are different from those of every other people, and they do not keep the king's laws, so that it is not in the king's profit to tolerate them. If it please the king, let it be decreed that they be destroyed, and I will pay ten thousand talents of silver into the hands of those who have charge of the king's business, that they may put it into the king's treasuries. So the king took his signet ring from his hand and gave it to Haman, the Agagite, the son of Hamadetha, the enemy of the Jews. And the king said to Haman, the money is given you, the people also, to do with them as it seems good to you. Verse 7 is somewhat strange when they talk about the casting of the lots and the chronology of what they were casting lots for and when they were casting lots. Is the casting of the lots happened for a full year and then he decides, hey, now it's good. And when the first month of the year came about, he talked to the king or was it happening all at once? It's, it's difficult to tell, but the end result is this. Haman has gone forward and cast lots to see what time might be best to destroy the Jews. Lots were a way of... of finding sort of the the will of the gods, as it were. In this case, it's actually slightly different. It's not just to find the will of the gods, but to kind of change the fate of people, to say, I want this thing. When can I best pursue it to make it happen? When can I change fate and destiny and make this thing occur? Part of this is simply the idea of fate and destiny coming down upon the Jews as well, as the lots tell them. These lots would have been hardly different than our modern-day die. Just the way that they throw them and read the numbers that came up would have told him what day was best for this. David in Psalm 16.5 says, The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. That is the same word that's being used here for casting lots. You hold that for me. You hold my destiny is what it means. And that is exactly what Haman is trying to do. He is trying to make his will of the destruction of the Jews' destiny. And it seems like he has it. It seems like the gods have been favorable to him. And now he knows exactly where it is. Seems as though fate and destiny are now against the Jews and We might want to go and cheer up the Jews, go and tell them something to make them a little bit happier. And when things like this happen to people, we sometimes would quote Romans 8, 28, all things happen for the good of those who love God. It's not that that's wrong. It can come off as a bit trite at times. I imagine if you told a Jew hearing that the most powerful man in the world has given all of his power, his signet ring, and all of the authority of his kingdom behind a man who wants to exterminate them with absolutely nothing to stop them. I'm sure that they would ask, how could this possibly be for good? All of God's promises already seem to hang by a thread. He has promised us blessing, we have none. He has promised us land, we are not there. He has promised us a king, we don't have one. We are suffering under a foreign king, suffering under foreign governments, and we will continue to do so. And now we are threatened with annihilation. How are we to see that this is going to be any good for us at all? Indeed, many of us ought to ask that same question. When we, when we hear that, when we go through suffering, we hear, hey, God has all things happening for good for those who love him. The way we typically interpret that is all things are going to happen for good, which means eventually in this life, 
I'm going to see something of the good of why I'm suffering. I'm going to come out of this, and I'm going to be able to help other people with their traumatic experiences, or my faith is going to be strengthened through this. Let's be quite clear. When Paul writes that, he writes it with a context of martyrdom kind of right there in the passage. Later in chapter 8, he's going to say that we are nothing more than sheep to be slaughtered. He's going to talk about death not being able to separate us from the love of Christ. How, how in this life is a martyr supposed to receive good from his martyrdom? He's literally dead. He can't receive good from it in this life. So often we cling to that particular passage because we think that we are going to see something of it in this life. That's not what Paul is saying. He's saying that even their martyrdom is good. Their martyrdom builds up our faith. Their martyrdom is a witness to the grandness of Jesus Christ that he is worthy to die for. Their martyrdom builds up the church in faithfulness and in strength. It's not just good for us in our lives. Even if we don't taste it in our lives, what God does is good. Certainly, the Jews might not see that here. They might only see the evil and the wicked. They might only see the horror of what is in front of them. But this is indeed for their good. Haman has cast his lots and he thinks that the gods stand on his side, but he still, in this passage, needs to get the king to sign on to it. And so he makes three basic arguments. One, the Jews are a really small and insignificant people. When he says that there is a certain people scattered, what he actually says is there is one people who are scattered. He means one among many. It's a way of saying the Jews are really insignificant. This people that, that, are, that are thwarting you are really, they're not terribly important. This is not a big deal. I'm just, I barely even mentioned it to you, honestly. It's just, this is just a, a small thing. They're a small people. So he's trying to demean the Jews to make it seem like this is a light thing. Secondly, he makes it seem like it's in the king's best interest. They don't listen to your laws anyway. And thirdly, and most importantly, he says, I'll give you a lot of money. 10,000 talents is an unbelievable amount of money. And no doubt, Haman doesn't have it. The reason why Haman is offering this much money is because he is going to be allowed, as verse 13 makes clear, to plunder the Israelites. And in that plunder, he will then make sure that the king has 10,000 talents of silver from that plunder. These arguments are really odd taken together. If they're so insignificant, if the Jews are such a small people and they're scattered all over the place, why waste your time with them? Why would they possess such a huge sum of money? Why would the king just annihilate them? Why not chasten them? Why not warn them? Why not penalize them first? Why not see if he can get them in line? Why go straight to the neck? The truth of the matter is, Ahasuerus doesn't care about any of that. All he sees, I think, are dollar signs, given that most of his money was spent on the ill-fated attempt to take Greece. And again, we see in the book of Esther, as we see, I think, all over Scripture, money is a sign of power. Haman gets to use power because he gets money, or he can get money. Money is simply the means by which the world uses power. It is a, a weapon for the use of power in the world. This is, by the way, one of the reasons why Matthew 
as Jesus warned us, you can't serve God and mammon. You can't serve the power of the world and serve the power of heaven. You can't lay your life down in order to gain the power of the world all the while thinking that behind you stands the power of heaven. These are two distinct things that will never come together. You cannot do both. And I'm not sure, in my experience as a preacher, in my experience as a congregant, that we have adequately, at least in my life, have adequately really heeded the warnings that the Bible has about money. My own anecdotal evidence of sitting, listening to preaching, and probably even my own preaching as well, is that we, we lessen the warnings that the Bible has about money to probably assuage our conscience. We run to the early part of Acts to make sure that people understand that they still believed in personal property. It was still theirs to give away. We make a big deal out of making sure that people understand that it's the love of money that's the root of all evil, not money itself. And we do a really good job of pointing out that Jesus doesn't condemn the rich. While all of these things are good and true, and they are good, and they are true, I don't think that we do a very good job in, in simply looking at things like that of really dwelling on what the Bible emphasizes. Jesus might not condemn the rich, but he makes it really clear that salvation is impossible, almost, almost impossible for those who are wealthy, who are comfortable in their situation. Luke 16.25 has Abraham, through the words of Jesus, saying to the rich man in the parable of Lazarus and the rich man, Child, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, and Lazarus in like manner bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. Quite often the Bible warns against the difficulty of gaining salvation for those who have wealth. Furthermore, those who have wealth are looked upon quite often as oppressors and enemies of the people of God. As here, go to the book of James, chapter 2, when he's talking about don't accept the rich man into your worship service and tell him, here's a good seat, you sit here and send the poor to the back. He says, who are the people who oppress you? Are they not the wealthy? Are they not those who have money? So often money can blind us to the nature of eternal life. In Luke 12, the man who has much says, well, I just got to build some more barns. I'll just build more barns. And God says, you're a fool. Tonight your life is required of you. Moreover, the early church, regardless of its belief in personal property, was much better described as giving away their personal property than overly concerned with the defense of having it. I think, frankly, we are much more concerned with our defense of it than we are with how we use it. I know money isn't evil. I know having it isn't wrong. But let us heed the warnings of how we are to use it, how we are to spend it, how we are to accumulate, and how we are to be good stewards of the power that God gives us here in the world. Haman shows the evil and the wickedness that money can have in the world, the power that it can wield among even the powerful. So because Haman has the affirmation both of the gods and of Ahasuerus, the edict goes forward. And in Esther 
3, 12 through 15, we can feel the heft of power. We can feel the heft of power, the weight of power. Verse 12, we read this. Then the king's scribes were summoned on the 13th day of the first month, and an edict, according to all that Haman commanded, was written to the king's satraps and to the governors over all the provinces and to all the officials of all the peoples, to every province in its own script and every people in its own language. It was written in the name of King Ahasuerus and was sealed with the king's signet ring. Letters were sent by couriers to all the king's provinces with instruction to kill, to destroy, and to annihilate all Jews, young and old, women and children, in one day, the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, and to plunder their goods. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree by every, in every province by a proclamation to all the peoples to be ready for that day. The couriers went out hurriedly by order of the king, and the decree was issued in Susa, the citadel. And the king and Haman sat down to drink, but the city of Susa was thrown into confusion. The obvious burden of this paragraph is all and every, all of the power to every single place it could possibly go is meant to overwhelm us with repetition and repetition, all, every, all, every. For the Jews, there is clearly nowhere that they can run. There is nowhere that they can hide. There is no safe spot. There is no safe country. There are just places where you can go and delay death. It's not just that it goes everywhere. It's all of the power That signet ring, as much as money is a sign of power, this is a signet ring that signifies where that money is to go. It's the signet ring that shows the power of Ahasuerus stands behind this. All the power of one of the greatest kingdoms in the world is focused directly on the annihilation of the Jews. And that is all of the evil that you could imagine. Verse 13 is emphatic. To destroy and to kill and to annihilate. Man, woman, child, all of them. And to take every single thing they own. This is nothing but a demonstration of the power that has stood behind every opposition to God's people. From the first day we have read of God's people being a people to the very last in the book of Revelation. The power is always meant to be depicted as overwhelming and mighty and unprecedented And the people of God always suffer under its hand. In the book of Revelation, chapter 13, we read this. And I saw a beast rising out of the sea with ten horns and seven heads and with ten diadems on its horns and blasphemous names on its heads. And the beast I saw was like a leopard. Its feet were like a bear's. Its mouth was like a lion's mouth. And to it, the dragon gave his power and his throne and great authority. Later on in that same chapter we read, All authority was given it over every tribe and people and language and nation, and all who dwell on the earth will worship it. Everyone whose name has not been written before the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who was slain. They will look at this beast and they will say, Who is like the beast and who can fight against it? We might talk about countries flexing their muscles when Russia used to parade their missiles and all their troops in in the squares. To show off their might, they might have been flexing their muscles. This is what the the Bible means when it talks about horns. They've got horns. 
Seven, or ten here, seven heads, ten horns, perfection in power. Who can fight this worldly power? Who can fight the power of the world? Friends, we we ought to expect that the power of the world will look overwhelming, and it's supposed to, because we can't overwhelm it. It is given power to conquer you. It's given power to corrupt you. It's given power to destroy you if it can. But we know that this is not how the story ends, neither our story nor Esther's. And as much as Esther's story and the people of this and the story of the people of God in Esther is meant to be a depiction of our own. The world has condemned us. The world has destined us for death and seeks our ruin, but God has other thoughts. And just as Abraham was said to have gotten Isaac back from the dead figuratively, when he raises the knife over Isaac to show that he will be faithful to the Lord's command, the Lord stops him. The book of Hebrews says that this is the same thing as having Isaac resurrected to him. This, in the book of Esther, is the same thing as having the nation resurrected. They are as good as dead. The decree has come down. It is irrevocable. It will not be returned. Swords will go out. The power of Ahasuerus will go out. The power of the world will come down upon them and they will die. But God will not let it. And he will overturn this for the good of his people, even in the midst of what seems to be an utterly impossible situation, God will undo it. The earthly powers don't know that. The earthly powers toast to the thing that they've done. They sit down and they feast. They drink. The city, it says, is in confusion. It's a difficult word to translate. It means that there's a sense of of agitation and bewilderment that something so confusing and and horrible has come down that they don't know what to do about it. We live in a democracy, and one of the things that democracies do is it sort of nullifies a ruling class of people. We don't have a house of lords. We vote to place into the Senate and the House of Representatives the people who are just like us. There's no ruling class who stands over us and looks down on everybody else, at least That's the way it works in theory. That any of us could be voted into office. Any of us, so long as we meet several small qualifications of being over 35, which I barely make. I could be president next. Who knows? I know. I'm not. In theory, any of us, in practice, it's not going to happen. In practice, those people who become our leaders and our representatives, those people who are voted into Congress, whether on the right or on the left, are almost all people of wealth, are almost all people of power already. In practice, they don't come from our ranks. Our presidents, in the modern era especially, have all had considerable power before taking office, the lone exception to that, and I do mean, I think, the lone exception to that would be Harry Truman. But beside Harry Truman, almost all of the presidents already have a great deal of wealth and a great deal of power before they even go in. So while in theory, they should come from us, in practice, even that in this world is muted. How much more so in a kingdom where it's not a ruling class of people, it's a ruling family of people and a chosen one from that. How much above the suffering of his people does he sit? 
How much above the clamor of his people does he sit? He can't hear the sheep baying at him. He just wants them killed. Ahasuerus and Haman have no ideas of the problems that they have caused. The pain and the confusion and the anger and the frustration and the wickedness that they are doing. They will toast to one another. Likely because they think that all those problems are below them. After all, killing Mordecai wasn't enough. That's too small of a thing. Haman sets his sight on an entire people. Let us then be reminded what a wonderful thing it is that our Lord did not come to us as a powerful king standing in glory and splendor. We often think that that would have been wonderful had he come like that the first time around, but there's a reason why, friends, he came humbly as a servant. He doesn't stand above us and issue commands. He doesn't stand above us and commence edicts down to us to tell us how to live our lives. No, instead, he is not above the suffering of his people, but he comes to take it on. He is not above the sin of his people, but he comes to bear it for us. He does not seek to bend the world to his will, but to humble himself in service to the world that hates him. Our Lord, the great king and high priest, the one who rules all the nations with an iron rod and upholds creation with the power of his word, the very strength and the image of God, the one who can himself and the only one who can approach the ancient of days, who is glorious beyond measure, didn't use glory to redeem us, didn't use power as we find it here to call us to him, but rather he came in humility to show us the power of God. He clothed himself as one of us, as poor, as weak, and as frail. And taking our sin showed that his power lies not in the power of the world, not in the power of money, not in the power of edicts, not in the power of commands, not in the power of the military, not in any of that. His power lies in an unseen God who will raise him from the dead. And so he redeems us because he didn't place himself above us, but because he placed himself with us. He is one of us. Even as he is much greater than us, he is still just one of us. He is our brother, even while he is our Lord. And even as he commands the stars and the planets to spin and to rotate, even as he commands the stars to explode, he serves us. So that all those who trust in his sacrifice, who trust in his good word, who trust that he alone is our propitiation, he alone gives us cleanliness from sin, he alone can redeem us from our lawlessness and our wicked estate that those who do so will never be let down but will always find in him a gracious good kind gentle lord and can be redeemed a god and a lord and a king who doesn't feast while his people suffer but rather suffers so that his people can feast You will, in your life, undoubtedly, go through bad days. Some of those days are going to be worse than others. Some of those years are going to be worse than others. I hope we don't have another 536, but we might. I hope we don't have another 2020, but we might. 
There's no indication that this world is going to continually get better. We may suffer unintelligibly on the earth. We might see the beast turn his sights to us. And we might find ourselves powerless. And yet, while his servants might feast at our destruction, as the mighty and the powerful of the earth gorge themselves while God's people suffer, we will feed ourselves on a humble feast of bread and wine. For we know that just as surely as your life and my life will be changed in the blink of an eye and the twinkling of a star and the sounding of a trumpet, so this meager feast will be transformed into the great banquet feast of a wedding between the bride, the church, and her groom, Jesus Christ. So, even in the meantime, in darkness and despair, we come here to feast because we know how that story ends. It ends by us feasting. While humbly here, we feast all the while proclaiming that our Lord has died and waiting for the day of his return. We feast as a way to proclaim his victory. We feast as a warning to the powers, to those who would seek our end, as a warning to the powers of the air and the principalities that they have no power over us so long as Jesus is broken and beaten for us in the past and victoriously raised for eternal life today. So let us come to this table, proclaim his victory. Humble yourselves for this. For here is the meal where our Lord is broken. His blood is poured out for our salvation. Let us pray. And Father, we are thankful for the good that you have done to us. Our gratitude for the physical things of this earth are far surpassed by the thankfulness we have in the provision of Jesus Christ who is nothing less than your glorious Son for our sin and our salvation. We gladly proclaim his gospel. We will gladly proclaim his salvation, his glory, his power, his death, his resurrection, his truth, his worth, his promise, his work as ours only by grace. Thanks be to God for Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Will you stand?